welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Tim Miller in for Charlie Sykes with a special Gay Pride Bacchanal featuring my old friend Jamie Kurt. You know, this this intro didn't feel quite right. Katie, can we can we gay it up a little bit? There you go. There we go. A gay pride special with my old friend Jamie Kerchick. I feel like we're at the Duplex Diner and it's a Thursday night. We get to talk about a little politics, a little gay history, a little gossip. Uh, he's got a new book out that is on the New York Times bestseller list called Secret City. Jamie? Thank you, Tim, for having me and for that lovely introduction into Dawn of Summer as well. <laughs> Gloria Gaynor. Gloria Gaynor. Excuse me. Oh, my God. Gosh, this, is, uh, this makes me Jesus. feel better because... Take my gay card away. There are so many little items in your book that I was like, did I not remember this? Did I not know this? So I'm happy to have one over you before we do it. Um, your book, I want to start with this, is phenomenal. And Thank I you. and you know me and the listeners know at this point that like I'm not full of bullshit praise. I only praise something if I really, really like it. And uh, it's unbelievable. The highest praise I can give to it is that it made me jealous. Uh, I'm like 100 pages in and I'm going, man, Jamie really pulled one over on me. So um, if you enjoyed this conversation, I, I do want everybody to go out and buy Jamie's book. I will say you should only buy it if you've already pre-ordered why we did it. Uh, I do see the download numbers on this podcast and I see my Amazon purchases and some of you people are slacking. I, I, I do know that. I've, the math is not working in your favor. So buy both. Um, but Jamie, I, I have a lot of questions I want to get to You know, as we kind of go through the history of gay Washington, I want to get to you about how a lot of the themes you go over in the book are really kind of weirdly relevant again um, in, in our modern day politics. Talk a little news of the day. But um, first, I just I just want you to tell the audience who if they aren't familiar about the book, I, I basically would describe it. It's kind of like this gay Forrest Gump and you're, you're going through mm-hmm. everything in history from. Uh, you know, the McCarthy hearings to assassinations to Hyannis ports uh, all the way up to Iran-Contra. And like, there's a gay there. Like one of us is yeah. there the whole time. And so tell, tell them a little bit about that. Well, basically, Secret City looks at what I call the specter of homosexuality and when it ruled over Washington. And it's a period that I largely take uh, being around World War II until the end of the Cold War. And this was the period when, uh, well, first I should say, Washington is a city, as you know, Tim, that runs on secrets and always has run on secrets. Secrecy is a form of of currency. Secrecy is a measure of power. The whole notion of a security clearance, right, is something that is given to certain people of a certain level of power, right? So secrets have always been used um, to hurt people, to exert power. And through in this period of time, there was no secret that was more deadly to a political career, that was a worse accusation than homosexuality. Uh, even at the height of the Cold War, I say, uh, when, when homosexuality and communism were often conflated, homosexuality was still the worst thing uh, you could possibly uh, be to, to be a homosexual. Uh, and I go from World War II because that is really the, the moment when what had been a a sin or a medical condition, that's basically what homosexuality was considered, it transforms into a national security threat. Uh, and, it's, and it's because of this fear that gay people, or sexual deviants as we were once known, 
that they were uniquely susceptible to blackmail. And that does not change really until when I end the book in 1995, which is the year that Bill Clinton lifts the ban on gay people receiving security clearances. Um, so it's basically a 50-year period of time that we're examining here. Largely, it's the Cold War and a little bit more on, on either end. Yeah, I want to I want to take everybody on this journey because it is, I mean, it's really just astonishing. Uh, I mean, obviously, beginning most starkly with Whitaker Chambers and Algar, I guess you don't start there, but that's very early, um, yeah. all the way up through, like we're saying. I, I, I want to get to all that. But what as, as somebody who just finished writing and as someone who's making a, you know, mid-career pivot to writing and getting, the thing that struck me the most about this is, and that gave me the most jealousy towards you is, is just how rich it is and how deeply reported it is. And I, I just found myself wondering as I was turning page and page, how, I mean, I remember you telling me about this book for the first time. It feels like eight years ago. I have no idea when you actually started, but it feels like forever ago. But probably just yeah. talk about the process. Yeah. I mean, were you, did you just find any old, old queen you could at, uh, at, at JR's and, and ask them if you could interview them about the eighties and seventies? I like what, I, what was the process for, for getting all this? Well, I'd say it started out, yes, it started out talking to people, um, people who I thought might know something. But of course, when you're writing a book that starts in the 1930s, as my book does, there's no one alive still then, right? But yes, talking to older folks who had a knowledge perhaps of what Washington was like in the 60s and 70s and others who may have had sort of deep historical knowledge of certain places. So I was relying on, yes, old, uh, older, older gay folks, also historians, you know, straight historians of the Cold War of certain presidents were very helpful. Uh, I would say the first step of doing a book like this was reading a lot of books. Right. Robert Caro's volumes on LBJ, which are more than just biographies of a single individual. They are really books about the era. So reading those, reading books about McCarthyism, reading books about the Cold War, reading books about the Whitaker Chambers, Alger Hiss case. And so just reading, reading lots of books. And then would come reading newspapers and other periodical press. And there's, there's lots of you know, thousands of articles. Then a lot of archival research and going through old papers, the presidential libraries. Um, some of my best finds were in uh, Ben Bradley's paper collection, hmm. figures like that. And so it was it was a, a years long process. And then, do, you, then, do you have any fond memories of sitting in, you know, somebody's salon in Washington and, you know, being regaled about lost and found or, you know, anything? Oh, yeah. I interviewed... Um, Two elderly gentlemen, they're a, they're a gay couple who met in the 1960s here in Washington. And they were living in my, my old building that I, that I lived in. And, you know, uh, in Calorama. Uh, and they would invite me over for, you know, martinis and I would just sort of take, just take notes. Um, you know, some of the interviews were not very comfortable and ended rather quickly. Uh, we can talk about it later, but I, I had to interview Bob Livingston, the uh, Republican yeah. congressman who was involved in this cockamamie plot to kind of torpedo Ronald Reagan's nomination in 1980 with these accusations that Reagan was a was a surrounded by a, or being manipulated by a cabal of right-wing homosexuals and Bob Livingston did not really want to talk about this so it was a very kind of uncomfortable and quick conversation it didn't last very long but yeah when you're writing a book like this about a subject that was considered so shameful that people would not even speak of it. They would come up with all these euphemisms. I mean, one of the things that I discovered in this book was all the euphemisms that people would come up with to describe homosexuality, because even the word itself was considered too scandalous to, to utter. 
um, when you're researching a topic like this, it just it just requires a lot of time and reading between the lines and discovering how people would sort of elliptically describe this this issue. Yeah, I learned a couple of new ones myself. I, I didn't know about ACDC. I didn't either. I, I didn't I'm, know I'm that expanding either. my repertoire. <laughs> um, Okay, so the book starts. I, I don't. We were, you know, it's it's about a million pages long, which is my only complaint. You know, I have a Twitter brain now, and so it was hard yeah. for me to, to. You had to really. Ch- I had to challenge my brain to work all the way through it. But we're not going to get to everything. But I, I do think it's interesting to start at the start, or basically the start, which is Sumner Wells uh, comes from a, a very illustrious political family, is yeah. at the State Department, and talk about that, just his story a little bit, and you know the relationship with FDR, and and how just dating back to you know World War II, really homosexuality was used yeah. against everybody at the highest levels of government. Yeah, so Sumner Wells was the Under Secretary of State, which basically meant that he was number two at the State Department, and he, as you said, he he came from a very blue blood family, personal friends of the Roosevelts. He was actually in the wedding party as a as a young boy of FDR and Eleanor. Um, and he, one day on the presidential train, is propositioning some porters on the, on, on the train. And news of this reaches his enemies within the administration. The Secretary of State, Cordell Hull, who is a kind of old Southern Democrat who FDR does not really like, but he, he has to have him in his cabinet to appease the Southern wing of the Democratic Party. And another man named William Bullitt, who's a fascinating figure, uh, was the first ambassador to the Soviet Union, then was ambassador to France, may have been a closeted homosexual himself. It's unclear. If so, it would sort of be a recurring pattern in this book of deeply closeted gay men acting out against other gay people. But Hull and Bullitt use these accusations. They try to destroy Wells's career to get to convince FDR to fire him. And, you know, interestingly, FDR uh, his first reaction to this, when he's told that his undersecretary of state is propositioning porters on the train, is to to tell William Bullitt, well, he wasn't doing it on company time, was he? You know, he sort of jokes it away. But what forces his hand is that in 1942, so right in the middle of all of this, another political figure, a Massachusetts Democratic senator named David Walsh, who's an isolationist, okay? And this is back, by the way, when it might be hard for Bulwark listeners to imagine this, but political parties in America, they used to have a lot of ideological diversity. There, <laughs> there, there used to be liberal Republicans. There used to be conservative Democrats, right? Uh, so remember those days? days? Remember those days? Yeah. yeah. So David Walsh was a conservative Democrat. He was an isolationist. And another interesting thing is that the New York Post, which at the time was a liberal newspaper, if you can imagine that, yeah. it was the part. It was the newspaper. Rag. It was still a rag, but it was lib- it was a liberal rag then. It had just transformed from a broadsheet to a tabloid. Literally weeks before, it announced that Senator David Walsh was frequenting a all male brothel in Brooklyn, frequented by Nazi spies. So, can you think of a better story for a tabloid newspaper than you know U.S. senator is at a gay brothel with Nazi spies? You know, perfect story, right? So that kind of forces FDR's hand, and it really changes the rules of American politics because it's the first outing in American politics that had never happened before, that a, that a public official had had his homosexuality exposed. And um, about a year after that happens, FDR basically has to accept Wells' resignation. Yeah, the interesting thing about that with FDR is it was, as I was reading it, the book, 
at the beginning, I was almost kind of encouraged by FDR's reaction. I, he yeah. very much resisted firing his friend uh, under a lot of pressure and, and almost got more upset at the, at the I think it was Bullitt or whoever it was yes. within the administration who was trying to get him fired than, than he did at, at, at Wells. Yes. And so at, at the beginning of the book, I'm kind of encouraged. But then as I read on, uh, you separated it through each presidency, and it feels like every successive president handles gays worse until you get yeah. to... The modern age, H.W. Bush, and yeah. there are really no heroes among kind of the straight politicians here. Yeah. Uh, you know, t- t- you know, I, I just the lack of humanity with which they dealt with their the, their close friends when I, whenever trouble arose. Yeah, I, I, I was a theme I felt like throughout the book. Yeah, that's a really good observation, and I think you see often that they have these close relationships or professional relationships or friendships with gay people. And yet when it comes to the kind of the public policy, they're not humane. And, you know, FDR is an interesting example of this. You know, when he was assistant secretary of the Navy, this is like 20 years before he's president, he actually had a, a gay scandal on a, on a Navy base in, in Newport, Rhode Island, where he was supposedly sending sailors as, as kind of sexual decoys <laughs> to trap gay men in the vicinity of the naval base. And in fact, at the time, this goes to the earlier point I was making about how homosexuality was, was, was unspeakable. The New York Times, when they were reporting on this, they actually said in the, on the subhead, details are unprintable, right? So you could read the entire article and you would not really, you know, you would not exactly know what was going on. It was, it was, it was alluded to, but they would not use the word homosexuality. But yes, he supported a purge of gay people from the Navy when he was assistant naval secretary. And then when he's talking about the David Walsh case with the Senate majority leader, he says, well, you know, a man in this situation should just kill himself, just shoot himself in the head. So it's this, you know, it's like this remarkable dichotomy between the way that that he treated his friend, like he tried to protect Wells, right? But then then when it comes to another gay guy he doesn't know or and who's his his political adversary, David Walsh, he can sort of half-jokingly say, well, you know, back in the old days, we just give the man a revolver and he would take care of it. I want to fast forward to the, uh, I think, the gayest, if this is possible, yeah. of all of the controversies, which is the uh, you know Red Scare with McCarthy. And just, I, I guess I did not realize how intertwined, you know, this sort of lavender scare um, was with yeah. the Red Scare. And and so I, I want you to talk a little bit about that. But I, but I specifically, I'm going to press you now that I'm a journalist on, yeah. I, I, you left me hanging. On whether on whether Joe, Joe McCarthy and Roy Cohn were having an affair, oh. <laughs> you seem to really imply it very strongly, but you mm-hmm. couldn't get across the finish line. So I'd like to hear a little bit more about about just talk a little bit about McCarthyism's sure. attached to Let Lavender and then maybe his own issues. So yes, in February 1950, this is really where the Red Scare and the Lavender Scare both begin. They begin within weeks of each other. In February 9th, 1950, Joe McCarthy gives his infamous speech to the Republican ladies of Wheeling, West Virginia, where he says, you know, he waves the list in his hand. He says, I have a list of 205 communists in the State Department. And then less than three weeks later, Secretary of State Dean Acheson is called to testify before the Senate about these charges. And with him is a deputy undersecretary of state. And in passing, this deputy undersecretary says that over the past three years, the State Department has, has separated or fired 91 homosexuals. And this uh, becomes uh, a very shocking revelation. And it's at this point, really, that the red and the lavender scares become uh, intertwined. 
Uh, and in, and the, the Senate forms a subcommittee to investigate the presence of, of homosexuals in the State Department uh, in, in particular. And the State Department becomes very much associated with homosexuality. And there's a cartoon in The New Yorker, just to give you an example, by the way, of what of what sort of liberal opinion was at the time. There was a cartoon in The New Yorker and it showed a man applying for a job. And he's saying to the to the, the person about to hire him or considering whether to hire him, he says, yes, it's true, sir. I was fired from the State Department, but only for incompetence. Right. So <laughs> that's how like that's how pervasive was the association of homosexuality. Or yeah, like for the years, years I know it's finally gone by my by our era. But I mean, I, later in the book, that the State Department jokes come. I like George Schultz makes one of those jokes. Like yeah, nineteen eighty seven, uh, forty years later. Exactly, and it's it's just because it's sort of a trope, a Washington trope, um, and you can make lots of jokes about Foggy Bottom. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think I make that? a Foggy Bottom joke in my book. Actually, <laughs> okay. so they're still, they're still working sixty years later. And yes, and with McCarthy. I think, look, anytime someone makes a very big deal out of homosexuality, it's sort of natural for people to wonder about them, right? We always say, well, why are you? And that was that's kind of what happens with McCarthy. And he gets goaded in particular by a really fascinating character. I didn't, I didn't, I'd love to learn more about him. His name is Hank Greenspun. And he was the publisher of the Las Vegas Sun, I believe is the name of the newspaper. And he was a very kind of Las Vegas character. And he hated McCarthy. And he just started gay baiting, not even gay baiting, just accusing him of being a homosexual in the pages of his newspaper. I mean, just like throwing out these accusations that, you know, McCarthy's a queer and McCarthy doesn't really do anything about it. He's, he's advised that if you go after him, it'll just make it worse. But this sort of association with McCarthy and homosexuality really becomes most, I would say, infamous is during the army McCarthy hearings, which you have to understand why did the army McCarthy hearings happen? What, what were they about? Essentially, uh, Roy Cohn, who at the, at the age of 26, he's a genius. He becomes McCarthy's chief counsel on his committee investigating communists in the government. And he convinces McCarthy to hire this young man named David Shine, who is the heir to a hotel fortune. And he doesn't really seem to have many qualifications to be on the staff of this committee, except for what one newspaper very sort of uh, insinuatingly refers to as the physique of a Greek god. So already there are these whispers that what is it about Roy Cohn and why is he doting on this, this young staffer? What are they up to together? And then Shine gets recruited into the military because this is what this is. This is still the era of conscription. And Cohn just goes to such lengths to try to get Shine uh, a deferment or to get him a commission, right, as an officer, so he won't have to engage in all the sort of mundane tasks of a, of a normal yeah. private. And he goes to such an extent harassing the military, uh, abusing the military, that it becomes a scandal and, and, and hearings are called. And he, he's enlisting McCarthy in this gambit, basically. It's essentially gay rumors about McCarthy and Cohn or the impetus for the famous Army McCarthy hearings, which, yes. get, which get us there, yeah. And the Army McCarthy hearings are basically the downfall of Joe McCarthy. I mean, we all remember the, that very, I believe it's today, actually, is the, is the anniversary of the, of the moment when Joe Wel- Joseph Welch, who was the lawyer uh, for, the, for the Army, um, the chief counsel for the Army, when he very famously said to, to, to McCarthy, have you no decency, sir? 
that line was spoken uh, 1954, June 9th, 1954. That same Joseph Welch, by the way, who's such a hero to to liberals and well, really to anyone in America, right, for having the yeah. the courage to stand up to Joe McCarthy and really end McCarthy's reign of terror. You know, it was during those same hearings that Joseph Welch basically calls Roy Cohn a fairy uh, on national <laughs> television, right? I mean, it's this, yeah. it's this, it's this wild moment uh, where he's asked to define the word pixie because he had he had used the word pixie to to in in to kind of make a joke about a photograph that had been entered into evidence, and McCarthy asked him to define the word pixie. And Welch says, well, a pixie is a close relative of a fairy. And everyone in the hearing room starts chuckling because they all know who he's referring to, right? I have no evidence that Joe McCarthy was gay, but innuendo about McCarthy, Cohn, and Shine, it becomes a very powerful uh, motif during the Army McCarthy hearings. So you can't say here that he was in a he was in a love triangle. No, I can't. With Roy Kahn in this. In this I had to be okay. very scrupulous in this book. So. All right. Well, I, I I had to put you on the spot on that one. I, I want to just talk about one uh, name. And there's so many here, but but one name that I I, I couldn't believe I didn't know or I should have known uh, that came um, uh, and in Forrest Gump spirit. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll now cross over to the civil rights era and to Mar- the I Have a Dream speech. Yeah. Um, Bayard Rustin. Yeah, um, I, I mean, what just just I mean, just one minute or ninety seconds for the people that that like me don't, don't aren't familiar with that name. I, I thought his story was really phenomenal. Bayard Rustin is really one of the great moral figures of the twentieth century, and he was the or, the chief organizer of the March on Washington. And he was uh, this is nineteen sixty three, and he was a relatively openly gay man. You know, as much as you could be in that era. Martin Luther King knew he was gay. It, it had actually been used against him by his enemies within the civil rights movement. Adam Clayton Powell had actually um, used uh, uh, the sort of threat that he was going to allege that Martin Luther King and Bayard Rustin were engaged in a, in a gay affair. He'd actually threatened that. So this was not a secret that he was gay. But then, in ni- then just two weeks before the March on Washington, Strom Thurmond gets somehow, presumably someone in the FBI sent it to him, a copy of Rustin's arrest record for a homosexual offense years earlier in Pasadena, California, and announces this on the floor of the Senate, that the lead, that the organizer of the March on Washington is a sexual pervert. And what's remarkable is that the civil rights leaders refused to fire Rustin. You know, it would have been easy for them to have done that. I mean, literally the only example in the whole book where people refused to fire the, uh, a gay person. Well, I think it's safe to say it's, it's the first instance uh, in American public life where a public figure is outed and, you know, live to, to tell the day. So it's a pretty remarkable career. Yeah, amazing story. Okay, I want to take a quick break. We're going to come back and give a little candy to the Bulwark listeners who want to hear bad stuff about Bill Buckley and, and Ronald Reagan. And then uh, we'll fast forward to what's happening in the news today after that. We'll be right back. So obviously, there's a reason why I am a huge fan of Omaha Steaks. Now, here's a little gift-giving wisdom from Omaha Steaks. Dads want steaks, and with Father's Day just around the corner, there is not a better gift than Omaha Steaks. Visit omahasteaks.com, type bulwark in the search bar, and order the Dads Want Steaks package. 
For just $99, this limited time package includes 16, that's 16 mouthwatering entrees that he's guaranteed to love, like smoky, tender, bacon-wrapped filet mignon, gourmet jumbo franks, and their air-chilled boneless chicken breasts. And for a sweet finish, delicious caramel apple tarts. I'm just hungry just thinking about them. And as a special gift to my listeners, when you type bulwark, in the search bar and order the dad's want steaks package you will also get eight eight free omaha steaks burgers these burgers are full of bold beefy flavor made from 100 percent omaha steaks and now they're bigger than ever at a whopping six ounces don't wait send dad more than just a gift send him an experience he'll love and that he can share with you so go to omahasteaks.com and type bulwark into the search bar and order the dad's want steaks package you'll get 16 entrees and four desserts plus eight free omaha steak burgers Omaha Steaks is not just steak. It is the best steak of your life, guaranteed. That's omahasteaks.com, keyword bulwark. All right, and we're back. So I want to talk about three other uh, figures and or hit on. I guess it's a group in one sense. Mm -hmm. And I want to start with Bill Buckley. Man, I I knew how bad he was about about gays and homosexuality, and I, I knew about his rivalry with Gore Vidal. But boy, I mean, this this is a person that comes across as a kind of prissy <laughs> New York elite who wants all the benefits of being around gay culture. Uh, and his wife is adorned uh, in dresses mm-hmm. that are made by gays. And then he lashes out at Gore Vidal on TV, calling him a queer. And 15 years later, 1987, he, he, he has an op-ed, or 86 has an op-ed, wants to brand gays or brand AIDS patients uh, what 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 make you of 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 him and uh, you know there are all these other kind of conservative figures that are that are going around him you know over that 20-year period and the new right and, and how they dealt with all this yeah I mean with with Buckley you know one of the things I came across in his papers was that he he had a male relative who was sexually uh, sexually propositioned as as a young boy uh, multiple times. And I, I came across a letter uh, in Buckley's papers, and I can't really reveal more about it uh, other than what I've just said. And I think that that played some role in his views on this issue. A lot of people had issues with in their in their life that, that didn't then write New York Times op-eds saying that people need to be branded by the government. Sure. No, I'm not. I'm, I'm just saying <laughs> I, think, I think that this combined with his high Catholic... Catholicism, it's, I mean, Sam Tannenhaus, who's writing his biography, is a friend of mine, and he helped me a lot with this book. And I know that this is an issue that he's been kind of struggling to figure out because it was sort of unusual for him when you think of how urbane he was, right? I mean, and that outburst with Gore Vidal, what's remarkable about it is that this man was on television for like, 60 years, you know, and he never even came close to that. Right. And he had all sorts of really far left wing people on his show. It's actually heated conversations. And the show is called Firing Line. Compared to today where no one wants to debate anyone with a different opinion. I mean, go back and watch those episodes of Firing Line. Not only were they debating people on opposite ends of the political spectrum, but they did it in a very civil and enlightening way. So, yes, when he lost his cool, 
with Vidal. It was it was uh, unusual. Call, was it a queer? Yeah. Called him a queer. Called him a queer. Now, to be fair, to be fair, Vidal had called him a fascist, a crypto fascist, right before. Which might um, not have been fair at the time, but in, by 1986, you know, maybe if the shoe fits. Yeah. Uh, and this is all going on. You have to remember this is all going on in 1968 at the Democratic National Convention. There's people, there's blood on the streets. Um, but it is fascinating. And it's interesting with Buckley because, you know, one of his one of his most influential mentors was Whitaker Chambers, who right. you know, I, have, I have two chapters on the his Chambers case. And Chambers had a gay life, you know, for most of the 1930s. He was living as a, as a gay man. The Chambers stuff is so fascinating. Well, yeah, using, um, using the word gay might not even be. I think gay implies that you sort of accepted a, an, an identity. I mean, he was engaged. He admits hom- to the FBI, basically. He admits to the FBI right. that he was engaging in homosexual sex, that he was cruising for, for sex. And he does this because Alger Hiss, whom he's accused of being a communist spy, the Hiss team knows about this. And they are basically starting a whisper campaign to discredit Chambers as a spurned, vindictive homosexual, right? They're saying that he's he came on to Hiss and he's invented this whole story that, that Hiss was a spy in order to get back at him. It's, it's what Hiss would later refer to as fairy vengeance. Um, but then when, when this doesn't come out, Chambers' homosexuality is not publicized or not confirmed until 1974, when a Freedom of Information Act request uh, gets the FBI documents um, processed and, and, and revealed. Uh, and this is long after Chambers has died. But when Buckley's reaction to this is, is basically shock, he's like, I had no idea and nobody I know had any idea that Chambers you know, was that way. Um, and it's very hard to believe that because pretty much everyone you know, in the political world. At yeah, least. reading the book, it made it really hard to believe that once you realize the extent. Yeah. So he didn't want to kind of confront that. He didn't really want to confront that when it came to Chambers. And then, yes, I mean, AIDS. Before we get to uh, that, I want to, because uh, I want to get to tie it in with Reagan. We've slagged Buckley. Um, so I'd like to slag a liberal uh, shibble at the uh, ACLU. Yeah. <laughs> I, I just, I guess I didn't really think about this. It was, it was not, you didn't spend a ton of time on this, but I felt like it was an interesting parallel to, you know, this ACLU lately with Amber, you know, I was like, what is old is yeah. new, right? ACLU is in trouble yeah. with defending Amber Heard and sending these weird tweets about abortion. And, and yeah. like now they're not taking on certain cases and other yeah. uh, groups are having to do it. I, I, I it was interesting. You, you wrote about a couple of seminal early cases, both by Frank, the one by Frank Kamini, yeah. which, you know, which I'm really very well versed in. But then the one that I was not as familiar with was, um, oh gosh, I'm forgetting what it was, but the guy was selling the man mags. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and you know, these early, Womack. yeah, yeah. H. Lynn Womack, these early cases about gays not being able to be fired for their job or, you know, right. being able to send pinup magazines the same way right. Playboy does. Um, and, and ACLU and these, orgs like do nothing you know say they can't come to their defense well it actually goes back earlier than that i mean the david walsh case that i mentioned where uh the new york post was trying to well basically outed david walsh the general counsel of the new york post who was who was really sort of the ringleader of this was a man named morris ernst he was also the general counsel of the aclu so you so you have you know this guy who's really at like the top of like you know he's He's the general counsel for one of the leading liberal newspapers and the general counsel for the ACLU. And they're engaged in this campaign to smear and out uh, a senator. And then, yes, you're right. When Frank Kameny 
is fired uh, from, from his job in the Army Map Service in 1957. And he becomes the first gay person to publicly challenge this uh, firing, this offense. He yeah. goes to the ACLU and they won't help him because they're not taking any cases involving gay people yet. Uh, which I think just, I'm not trying to, I don't want to slag on the ACLU, but I just think it goes to show you how lonely it was for gay people, yeah. right? When not even the ACLU would take your case. You have to be really at the bottom of the barrel, right? When this organization, who's they're founded to defend the people who are the most unpopular, right? The most excluded people in society. They're founded to defend in World War I. Uh, the ACLU was formed to defend anti-war activists and anarchists and socialists right. who oppose American entry into World War I. You could not find more unpopular people, right? That's why the ACLU was founded. And even they will not defend uh, gay people fired on, on, on the basis of their sexual orientation. It's not until later into the 60s that they changed that. A lower caste than the atheists and the, <laughs> and yeah. the anarchists. Uh, it was, it was uh, uh, speaking of lonely time, I do want to fast forward to, the, to AIDS. And um, uh, you, met, you we can talk if you want about the Livingston part in, in the Reagan, but, but you wrote a great Politico. There's excerpt um, in Politico. Yeah. People want to read more about this Livingston witch hunt into the uh, you know, supposed cabal of, of gays and contras in the Reagan uh, administration. <laughs> but I, I, the AIDS part was obviously, you know, what I was most interested to get to. And, you know, the Rock Hudson story that everybody's familiar with, I think the basics of, uh, there are a couple of just these heart-wrenching moments where, you know, he, it is a picture of him actually in the White House where he recognizes that he is a lesion. Yeah. And then he goes to Badlands, Bar that was still around in my day, you know, afterwards yeah. and is kind of treated like a conquering hero. And it's like right at the edge of this. And then he dies and you have a picture from uh, the the Reagan library of yeah. uh, of the statement. This was this one really gutted me yeah. as, a, as a Reaganite um, of the statement about about his death and, and Reagan in his hand like crosses out our friend. Yeah, the word profoundly. Yeah, uh, just uh, yeah. I mean, obviously, this was more recent, right? So I'm sure your sourcing was a lot deeper. It, just talk about the, you know, that that era of you know the AIDS and intersecting with kind of the Reagan administration and and the challenges there. One of the original, I think, insights that my book offers is that there was a real concern among Reagan, his wife Nancy, and his senior advisors that Reagan would be perceived as, as gay, not just himself, Hollywood. Hollywood, that, but that he himself might be perceived as gay, and that there was this kind of aura of homosexuality around the Reagans. So it's like Nancy and all of her friends and her courtiers and her designers and her hairdressers. There's actually in the photo insert page in the book, there's, there's a page entitled uh, All the First Ladies Men, and it's just photos of her with all of her gay male friends. And I really date it back to when Reagan was a young actor in Hollywood, and he's in a film with Betty Davis in 1939 called Dark Victory. And you have to understand that this is during the era of the code, which is when depictions of homosexuality were banned on screen. But the director of this film basically wants Reagan to play the gay best friend. And the way Reagan describes it in his memoir, he wrote a memoir or he had a memoir, a ghost written in 1965, is he says that the director wanted me to play the role as if I was a fella who could sit in the dressing room with the girls dishing the dirt while they went on dressing in front of me. 
which is a very long euphemistic way of saying gay man, right? Right. Um, <laughs> and he's very he's very uncomfortable about this, uh, and it kind of offends him. Uh, and then in 1966, when he's running for governor, I came across this campaign volunteer who told a story about how he was very involved in the folk music scene and he wanted to organize a folk music concert for the Reagan campaign. And he made up all these signs and they were, you know, they were called Reagan camp because camp was what you would call like a folk festival. And he gets called into the headquarters and Nancy is there with this actress who was one of their friends working on the campaign. And they basically lecture him because you know, just the year earlier, uh, Susan Sontag had written her famous essay, Notes on Camp, uh, about, you know, describing camp as this kind of gay sensibility, right? And he gets basically lectured by Nancy and this other woman. And they're very suspicious of him. You know, why is he doing this? Did he, you know, did you did you know what this meant? And are you trying to associate our, you know, Ronnie with homosexuality? And they're, they're very paranoid about it, about this kind of innocuous, you know, campaign poster. And then in 1967, there's this scandal when he's governor, when Drew Pearson, who's this you know legendary muckraking newspaper columnist, he publishes an article in which he alleges that there's a, a, a group of Reagan aides were having a homosexual orgy at a rental property in Lake Tahoe. And he all but names Jack Kemp as a participant in this. Jack Kemp was at the this time- follows Kemp for decades. For decades, you know, and it actually, it probably- um, killed his chance of being Reagan's running mate in 1980, at least yeah. according to Lynn Nofziger. That's, that's what Lynn Nofziger told um, Bob Novak. Um, so, and then in 1980, there's, as I reveal for the first time in the book, there's these, this crazy allegation of a, of a right-wing anti-communist homosexual network controlling Reagan. And it's brought to the attention of Ben Bradley at the Washington Post, and they investigate it at the Washington Post. They actually take it seriously. And so I think there's just this, there's this a, a massive sort of sensitivity to this, that you know Reagan and Ronald and Nancy and his and, and, and Michael Deaver and um, uh, and Novziger, they all kind of know this. They know that Reagan has this sort of you know has these connections to gay people that he's been he's he's been tarred in the past as having gay AIDS and whatnot. And so I think when AIDS hits, right within six months of the Reagan administration, right it's June 1981 is when the New York Times reports on that, you know, rare cancer seen in 41 homosexuals. I think it's just this, it's this sort of terrible intersection, right, of an administration that is very hesitant, very allergic to anything gay. And, and, uh, and they also have this, you know, morning in America, very sunny, optimistic narrative right. that, that they want to sell the country. And here's this disease and it's, and it's sexually transmitted and it's killing homosexuals. And it's just like, oh God, we want to stay as far away from this as possible. And so it's not until September, 1985 that Ronald Reagan even mentions the word AIDS, you know, over four years after the disease has been identified. So yeah, it's not, I'm like you, I, there's a lot about Ronald Reagan that I like, um, but this is obviously not, not one of those things. Yeah, the human side of it of Reagan is interesting to me. is a, is, mm. is is an interesting insight, right? To that, I think you have about how how removed he was from people that that might have yeah. seemed like he was friends. He had a lot of kind of soft friends, and the the Deaver anecdote. I don't remember where he picked it up from, but where he he recommended this movie to Nancy and Ronnie to watch while they're yeah. at Camp David. It's and um, it has like the kiss, a, of, a, kiss of the Spider Woman. 
Yeah. It has a transgender character, I guess, or yeah. crossdresser or something. Uh, yeah, and Nancy yeah. is like, we had to turn it off. And it's just like, yeah. that's just, that is such an interesting insight into their actual psychology, right? Because yeah. the story is always like they have these gay friends and they're in gay, you know, communities. And, and it's yeah. true that they intervened in a good way. And the teachers and the Briggs Initiative in 68. Um, yeah. But so like you have this kind of image of them, which is actually more true of like the Kennedys, right? Which is he had gay right. friends and was very right. comfortable with homosexuality. And, like that wasn't really true. That was he had gay people in his circle, but it was always kind of at a remove. Yeah. Um, and that. And that that I think also you know sort of w- was was part of preventing his ability to kind of see fully the problem. Um, anyway, I, I would, look, I would love to do eight hours of this, but um, yeah. you know the people are here for politics, so I want to take a quick break, come back, talk about our friend Ron DeSantis, talk about a few other you know gay news on our special gay Bacchanal edition of the Bulwark Podcast. So we'll take a quick break. Be right back after this. Do you hate hearing ads? If so, I've got a solution for you. Join Bulwark Plus, where members enjoy ad-free editions of this show and all the podcasts in our Bulwark network, like Beg to Differ with Mona Charon and The Focus Group with Sarah Longwell. There's also the member-only podcast, The Secret Show, and The Next Level with Tim Miller. You can give a Bulwark Plus membership a try for the next 30 days for free. Simply go to thebulwark.com slash charlie to claim your free trial today. This offer is exclusively for listeners of this podcast, The Bulwark Podcast. That is thebulwark.com slash charlie. And we're back with Jamie Kerchick, author of Secret City, new New York Times bestseller. Um, You absolutely must get after you buy Why We Did It. By yours truly. I'm here on the Bulwark Podcast. I want to talk about some gay news. Gay news. Um, my first question for you is, and, and for people who don't know you, uh, your background is not so dissimilar um, from from mine, um, just as being kind of on the center right. Obviously, you've been more in the journalism space. You know, obviously, we're somebody that you know had been working in Europe and and very passionate about free markets and free peoples and, and democracy. And so you can disagree with my description of you if you want, but I, I have a little bit of clarity looking at the political scene right now because you're a fellow homeless traveler, um, yeah. right? And and so I, I like to talk to people like that when some of these issues come up because it's hard for me to determine like what is a real threat that we're seeing and, and what is maybe hype. And uh, and I'm talking specifically about these bills that are coming up, um, you know, the Florida bill, don't say gay, other states, you know, banning books with gay characters. And mm. uh, Louisiana has a bill that's basically don't ask, don't tell for teachers. And obviously, there are all these anti-trans legislation is coming up. And it's kind of it's happened really fast. And it was after this moment where, you know, it almost felt like the gay issue was settled and done, mm. um, you know, after the Supreme Court hearing. And and so I'm looking at all this. And is this is this a dead cat bounce? Um, you know, is this something where, you know, the battle days are returning? Like, what what's your sense, you know, having just done a big history of gay politics, looking at what's happening now within the within the Republican Party, particularly at, at the state level? Well, I think there's two things. I mean, one is I do think that there has just been an explosion of young people sort of embracing, you know, LGBTQ plus IA identities over the past 10 years. And that's undeniable. I mean, there was a the Gallup poll last year found that the number of self-identifying LGBTIA plus LMNOP, whatever, the alphabet, the alphabet people, right? Have you done Sullivan's podcast? I take it he, he was he beat the Bulwark podcast to the punch. That's okay. I did. I, yes, that that percentage has doubled 
in the past decade, from 2010 to 2020. And if you look at the numbers, they break them down by generation. But the percentage of Gen Z who identify as such is like 21%, which is, uh, I believe, like 10 times the number of, of baby boomers who identify as that. So, you know, do I think that all those Gen Zers who are claiming this identity, are they all LGBTQ plus? Um, I think it's fair to say probably not. The question is how much do you, the question is, do you view this as a problem? And if like, you do, and if you yeah, view, like, who right. cares? I mean, here in Oakland, right. you know, if right. you're straight and you like anime, you can call yourself queer and like, right. okay, that might annoy some people, but like, is, does that require government intervention? Right. Like, so that's not. the thing. Like there, there are, there are aspects of this that I don't like. I mean, I don't, I don't like how now apparently the word queer encompasses people who are straight. Okay. Like you can be a, you can be a total heterosexual and still be queer. I find it annoying or obnoxious. Right. But does this, you know, justify laws that are being, you know, passed in certain states to prevent um, certain things from being taught. That to me is is a little too far. Look, there are these like you see these TikTok videos, the libs of TikTok videos, right? And some I'm just gonna say, some of them are pretty appalling, okay? But how representative are they of American public schools? I think no one's stepping back to ask you know, are these just a couple of wacko teachers, which let's admit there are wackos in every profession, right? Why wouldn't there be wackos teaching in public schools? There are plenty schools? of conservative wacko teachers. There are there plenty conservative of wackos wacko too. Of all. So there are, yeah. there, are, there are wackos of all stripes. And I really think that so much of our political discourse now is driven by what's online, what's on Twitter, right? So you people, like literally like legislators, uh, rep, rep, representatives, senators, they're basically acting as sort of internet social media avatars. And if you're online, if you're on conservative Twitter, you're getting a constant stream of invective or a constant stream of you know videos about how the public schools are teaching everyone to be a genderqueer homosexual, and they're teaching them to fist each other at, in fourth grade. And, and it's just like this unending, you know, uh, like tsunami of like horrifying information. And like, again, there are rare examples where I will say, yeah, this is wrong. And like, this should not be taught. But I don't think it, I, I, not, I don't think, I know it does not rise to the level of the kind of hysteria that we're, that we're now seeing in places like Florida and, and elsewhere. Yeah. And it seems to me that I, I think this is where there's echoes of your book, right? Like, you know, there, there, and always on these things, there's like a couple steps forward and then a step back. You know, yes, and, precisely, um, yes, right, and it feels like like the more, and you might you might argue in some of these cases they're not actually out of the closet, but you know, the more out of the closet, the more in your face everything is, the more there's going to be a backlash. And I, I'm noticing, I, I want to, I kind of want to get to an interesting sort of lefty backlash too. But on the right, I mean, is your sense, you know, that that's only going to amp up? right? As they see it as a political opportunity. I mean, I guess, what is your threat assessment? Uh, do you see this as a very unfortunate thing that is going to make some kids who are gay or trans or whatever in red state school districts lives very miserable for a little while, uh, which I think seems like at this point is, is the baseline ante? Yeah. Or, or do you see an escalation from there? I don't want to sound Pollyannish, but I'm, I'm pretty optimistic that this is not going to work uh, electorally. Only because if you look at the broad sweep of our of the history that I recount in this book, it is very much two steps forward, one step back. Um, you know, if World War II was this kind of national coming out moment, 
this sort of era of kind of visibility for gay people, right? Uh, the Kinsey Report comes out in 1948. Yeah. Uh, identifies about 10% of the male population is gay, which is probably still too high, but whatever. It's shocking, right? And then it's followed by the Lavender Scare and the purge of gays in the government. And then Stonewall and Gay Liberation is followed by Anita Bryant. And I think that's what we're going through now is that we have this, you know, unprecedented visibility. You can't walk anywhere without a pride rainbow being, you know, shoved in your face, which I mean, on How do you one feel hand, about that? well, on the one hand, it's like, great. It's like, great that all these companies are bending over backwards. Ha 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 joke. No pun intended. They're doing. Yeah. I do have to say, I do have to say of all of the gay pride activations that I've seen, it is pretty annoying. You know, at this point it's like Comcast. Okay. Thanks. Like, right. no or I, like make my internet work. Actually. I don't, I don't need this, yeah. but um, I get it. It's fine. I did appreciate the one, that's one I saw this morning, which is Postmates is offering a like a bottom menu. <laughs> Just like here, here are the food. We'll 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 bring you foods that are good for digestive purposes. Are you like, serious? Okay, this is a practical gay pride <laughs> activation. Thank you, Postmates. Oh um, <laughs> does that does that does that offend your sensibilities? Uh, Nancy Reagan. It offends more than my sensibilities. <laughs> if, if. <laughs> um, so I want to. Uh, um, okay, I, I appreciate your poly interview. I am. Um, I guess I, I'll mark me. Mark my third assessment is just marginally higher than that. I mean, I think that obviously over the broad scope of history, Gen Z and millennial, frankly, accept, acceptance of gays is um, is so high that like yeah. this has this has this has an eventual end date. Um, but I do think a lot of damage can be done in the meantime. And I think particularly targeting the trans community, but also targeting gays and teachers. And I, it's just like the echo from Briggs in 68 to what is happening mm. now, this idea that these teachers like are groomers and yes. you know, can't be talking about gay stuff. I mean, I, I, I do think that can have an impact and is going to have an impact on kids, particularly in red states. And, and it's just practically ridiculous I mean, for anybody who knows like a six-year-old, like the notion that you can't talk about, you know, Johnny's two moms like mm. is 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 like not is you know is absurd. So I, I, that that's my assessment of of where we are. Um, on the left, I think it's interesting. I, I'm not trying to create an equivalence here, but I'm, I'm interested in there's an, a, a reaction that is happening to you know this increasing visibility of all these other communities um, that has made I, I guess I would say almost a. a bigoted on to a small degree in their own right um reaction to cis white gay men and like the interesting well, yeah. part of your book is because of the nature of the jobs in washington now I, you could write a book about trans history that would be horrific um about about what was faced by, by trans people historically and, and and lesbians but like the main target of like the lavender scare and you know these people who are losing their jobs and are committing suicide or getting aids is like gay men um uh, yeah. uh cis gay men and you know i was interested in the pete campaign in 2020 that, that sometimes i felt yeah. like me and like people in the center were the most adamant about how interesting and important this is and yeah. uh, you know and how big of a milestone this was and that people on the left were like poo-pooing it and, and saying almost like oh no yeah. pete is like you know like oh a gay guy a gay white guy who wears khakis like that's you know like almost insulting him there was and there was homophobic attacks on him you know because they, yes. he doesn't represent these more 
you know, like these, you know, gender, uh, non-binary and other types of communities, um, you know, that's sort of this critical theory attack on him. Like what, you know, that is also something that, that has a long kind of history. It felt like in this book, like it wasn't, you know, it wasn't obviously the worst actors were on the right, but I, I think that that, that's an interesting development. Uh, yeah, it, it, it is. And, you know, there's been, look, I've been very gratified with the response to my book. Um, it's been largely positive. There have been some people kind of complaining about the fact that I don't write more about, you know, lesbians or people of color, um, to which I would just say, you know, this is a book about political power in Washington during the cold war. And it's about people who had political power. And that was almost exclusively white men. Like there were very few women who had political power. There are very few black people who had political power. Um, and the reasons for that, and also, you know, if you look at what kind of uh, people had jobs that required security clearances, which made them more susceptible to the purges, there was greater scrutiny if you had security clearances. And that was very gendered as well. Also, male sexuality, gay male sexuality was heavily policed in a way that you know, lesbian sexuality was not. I'm not an expert on lesbian mating rituals, but I can say with some certainty that they're not, they were not in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. They were not, you know, loitering in in public parks or public restrooms finding sexual, you know, finding sexual partners that way, right? So they weren't bearing the brunt. They're like Sarah and and her wife sitting at home, eating ice cream. Yeah. Um, Going on hikes. God bless lesbians, you know? Right. So, um... And I think so. Yeah, I think that's actually that this this might this may be perplexing some of the reviewers, right? Because this is a book in which like the victims are gay, white, cisgender men. In some circles, it is not kosher to say that you know gay, white, cisgender men were ever victimized. Um, and it's not my purpose. It's not like I'm not you know uh, I don't I don't have a bone to pick here. I'm just I'm telling a story. Yeah, no, it's just interesting to read this book and to this was a view I already held, but it, but it, it it affirmed it. To read this book, all seventeen thousand twelve hundred pages of it. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, you come to the end, uh, to come to the end, and then think about Pete's campaign for president, and think of just how yeah. recent all this stuff was, and like right. within the lifetimes of so many people in this book whose lives were made miserable, whose lives were ruined, who had kill, who killed themselves. Um, think that somebody that had their identity would would be as close as he came to being a major party nominee for the president is just an astounding achievement an astounding progress that I, that I would think all people of good faith and you know a small l liberal not uh, not in a political sense would have just been overwhelmingly praising and obviously there was some of that and there was you know oh, um, a lot of of t- moving moments but I, I just was surprised by how how, me- how much effort there was to drag him down in that and and i guess maybe that's a sign of progress that we've come so far that you know yes we're the oppressors I now i don't know i agree i think you know most of the anger or the opposition to pete Buttigieg on account of his sexual orientation did not come from the homophobic right it came from the queer left i, I mean because it was during the primary it was coming it was yeah, coming sure. for him. it was yes, coming that's, for him that's, had he won but yeah it was coming for him had he won but uh um, I, I want to ask you about one more thing, and then let and then let you go. This is uh, our only non-gay topic, but you you uh, were at, you can correct me if I'm wrong about this. Was a Radio Free Europe, um, yes. working in Europe uh, for a while, yes. um, so had a front row view of, of the questions facing NATO and free peoples mm-hmm. um, in Europe. And so, I would just love your assessment of of the latest in Ukraine, how you think the Biden administration has handled it, 
um, and you know any any smart thoughts you have on the topic before we let people go. Well, I think the Biden administration has been generally um, handling the crisis quite well. I think there there were policies leading up to it that I think um, were unfortunate. For instance, on Nord Stream two, on giving weapons to Ukraine, that really began in the Obama administration was very hesitant to give weapons to Ukraine. But I think now they've they've generally um, they've done a good job of of, of supporting Ukraine. But, you know, I wrote a book in 2017 called The End of Europe, and its main themes were Russian aggression as being, we're, we're underestimating Russian aggression. Um, Germany uh, needs to end its neutrality and become a full-fledged member of the West and sort of get over itself and, and you know, build up its military. And Ukraine is the front line of uh, the fight for freedom and democracy. And I think all three of those themes uh, are still true five years later. So I told you so. I told What's your you so. assessment of where, where the war is at today? <laughs> oh, Congrats. Well. All right. I've already praised you for the book. For this book. Congrats on being right about the last book. But, um, you know, where, how about uh, let's use your predictive powers for good. Where are we at now? Well, I have to say I have not been following the war as closely as I should just because I have been promoting this other book and finishing this other book. But I generally take a pessimistic view of these things. And I know it's been very easy to kind of get swept up in the, obviously, the bravery of the Ukrainians and their uh, amazing ability to inflict such damage on their aggressors. Um, but I don't think we've seen really even the, you know, beginning of the end of the beginning, you know, to quote Churchill. I think we're very early in this uh, and it could drag on for many, many years. Well, on that uplifting note, Jamie, thank you so much for coming thank on you for the podcast. Me. I was so excited to do this for listeners um, who, uh, if you're interested at all in history, modern history, gay stuff, gay bars, lesbians, anything under that uh, umbrella, uh, you will enjoy Secret City. And Charlie will be back tomorrow for our usual Bulwarkian nonsense. And we'll do this all over again with Charlie in the big seat. See ya. The Bulwark Podcast is produced by Katie Cooper with audio production by Jonathan Siri. I'm Charlie Sykes. Thank you for listening to today's Bulwark Podcast, and we'll be back tomorrow to do this all over again.